Hello, and welcome to the City of Truth. Episode 8, The Properties of God. So far, we've spent multiple episodes discussing the existence of God. In that process, to demonstrate that it really was something like God we were talking about, we brought up a few of this being's qualities. There are additional qualities that we haven't yet considered, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, let's briefly review the qualities of God that we have already considered. We first concluded that there was a God due to the nature of cause and of potential, as well as the nature of existence. Through the first, we discovered that God is the purely actual being. There is no potential in God and therefore no change. Through the second, we concluded that God has intrinsic existence. Between these two considerations, we were able to deduce quite a bit. Any being that's incapable of change can't be affected by anything and has always existed. God must therefore be immutable, eternal, without limit, non-physical, as physical objects are subject to change. As this purely actual being caused all created things to exist, and actualizes all potentials, it is omnipotent. It must know all forms, so it is omniscient. We'll consider that a bit more. It must have acted of its own accord in creating things, so it has a will. It is present everywhere in virtue of its power, so it is omnipresent. Each of these properties weren't strictly proven. For instance, if anything else happens to be eternal, God's relationship to those things would be different. We could explain why this can't be the case, but it's not important to our big idea. Regardless, we can at least grant that God either possesses these qualities or something very near to them. All of the arguments we have discussed, all the concepts, the whole substance of the principle of causality can really be reduced to one concept, that the greater cannot come from the less. Whatever we find in the universe, whether it be goodness or truth or meaning or existence, all must be reducible to this singular source. All moral goodness reduces to this as we discussed in episode 7, all knowledge as in episode 2, all meaning as in episode 3, all power as in episode 5. When we take our first principles, those most common sense beliefs of mankind, the principles behind science, we come to this ultimate summit. There is a being, a fixed point, from which all things in the universe come, and to which all things tend. By its nature, it must be the very measure of the concepts of truth, goodness, power, and the like. In this sense, God really is properly called the supreme being. The concept of God as the greatest conceivable being is quite useful. We'll dwell on it a bit more later. But for now, let's consider the nature of God, often called the divine essence, in a bit more detail. 8.1. What God is not. We've already discussed why this being, whom we call God, must match the traditional Western view of him. I'm just going to refer to God as a him from now on as well. No, he doesn't have a sex. It's convention. Also, we have established that God is, and can talk about what he is but we haven't at all touched upon the question of who he is. We haven't talked about this or that religion being true. Our process here is largely one of negation. 
Changeable things can't be explained except by something unchangeable, so there is something unchangeable. But we don't really have a clue what that means. It's hard to conceive of a being that's totally unchangeable. Really, to be fully accurate, we've been discussing what God is not. He is not subject to time, space, change, limitation, outside forces, or anything at all. We don't know what kind of being that is. We only know what it is not. It's also important to avoid thinking of God in purely human terms. He is not like us. If we end up discussing qualities that he possesses, it is largely or even entirely by analogy. Briefly, there are three ways we can apply a descriptor. When we say that Socrates is bright and the sun is bright, we mean two very different things. The words bear little relation to each other. Second, we can use it in the exact same manner, like when we say Socrates is bald and Patrick Stewart is bald. Lastly, we can use it as an analogy. When we say that ants are loyal and that a man is loyal, this is clearly not the same thing. But there is some parallel between them. For instance, both will die to protect their home. One is a sort of higher expression of the other. For instance, when we say that God has a will, we don't mean that he's like a human being. What will means in terms of God is infinitely beyond us. By will, we simply mean something that moves itself, that chooses to act, like a person, as opposed to being forced to act, like a stone falling down a hill. But since God is unchangeable, insofar as he wills anything, he must eternally do so. Ideas like that boggle the mind. One other consequence of our earlier arguments, which we haven't covered yet, is that God must be purely simple. How so? Well, Anything made of parts needs a unifying principle that binds them. They are, by nature, separate. That's what having parts means. So something must act on them to bind the parts together. But any unifying principle that acts upon God would negate the very qualities that make him God. He is immutable and unchanging. There is no power that acts upon him, not even to unify him. He must be purely simple, then. Actual, one, pure existence. His essence and existence are identical with one another. This is also true of all the properties that we ascribe to him. He is, in reality, just one thing, the divine essence. This means that, strictly speaking, it's not true that God is patient, if that were a thing we were to claim about God. What we mean when we call him patient is that this divine essence, this purely simple and singular perfection, infinitely beyond us, bears some real resemblance to what we call patience. We've already granted that God is the source of all moral good, all existence, and all action. Existence and action are a type of good too. We will see in a moment that he is also the source of all ideas, and we've already talked about how he's omnipotent and eternal and so on. He is, in a word, maximally great, as St. Anselm proposed. He is then the origin of all good, and really the metric by which good is measured. It's fair to say that God is good and possesses every positive perfection to an infinite degree, again, by way of analogy. But if we say, by way of analogy, are we saying then that there aren't any of these good qualities in God which are traditionally assigned to him in most religions, such as kindness, mercy, justice, love, and the like? Not at all, or at least not in the broad sense. He would not and could not possess these qualities in the way that we do. For us, something like justice is a habit a secondary quality that we possess. It's not our fundamental essence, but a thing we do. And if we do it enough, it sort of leaves its impression on our personality. It gives us a habit or a virtue. Not so with God. 
Rather, the concept that we call justice is really just the quality of being like the divine essence in relation to those particular circumstances. Justice is copying God to the best of our ability in one of a thousand conceivable ways. Mercy is another. Patience is another. In us, these are distinct habits. In God, these numerous perfections are just the product of the eternal action of his singular essence. Since this singular essence defines the very metric by which each individual good is measured, it's not possible for them to be surpassed. For each of these qualities to really exist in the world in the first place, they must have their origin in God, just like everything else. We will consider the concept of good in a moment, but first we have to consider another property of God, his supreme intellect. 8.2 The Supreme Intellect Here we can return to the issue we considered in episode 2, where we talked about the strange correspondence that exists between our ideas about objects in the world and the form or idea of them in our head. These collected properties in our head about an object is what constitutes knowledge. Then we considered the fact that we group things together and make categories and abstract notions. We consider math, or the properties common to all apples, or whether a certain society is free. This is what we mean by a form. It's the concept of a thing, its larger category. The most abstract qualities, like freedom or math, are all quite distant from the objects that exist in the world, but they still inform us a great deal about reality. The problem was, then, how these abstractions can exist for us to find. One of the solutions we proposed was a separate world of forms. Another was the existence of God, the supreme intelligence. If all ideas and forms are held within a supreme intellect, then there is no need for Plato's weird world of forms, and yet they would still exist. This also solves the biggest problem about how a world of forms can manifest itself as objects in the real world. If God exists, he creates the world according to these forms, as he both contains the forms and stands in causal relation to all created things. It's hard to overstate how elegant a solution this is. First, it's great that we arrived at the same solution through independent processes. God appears to resolve most of the great issues that plague most mental models. But second, it explains why the math we hold in our head somehow has this seemingly magical correspondence to the world outside. God is a mathematician. He has math in whatever the equivalent is to his mind. He created the universe according to these strict mathematical laws and causal relationships. We study the objects and then extract from them the ideas that were used to make them. Suddenly, it's quite reasonable, even inevitable, that a consistent and intelligible law would govern how particles or forces work. Outside of this, it's inexplicable. Things like knowledge, logic, and communication are just what we thought they were. So God is this supreme intelligence. That means that the more fundamental reality is not matter, but mind and form. Intellect comes before physical existence, no matter how you slice it. Even in an eternal universe, forms precede matter conceptually. This supreme intelligence is responsible for the order we see in the universe as he directs and actualizes all things. 8.3. The Good So what do we even mean by good? Good is one of those words that's so simple that it's difficult to define. The first sense is the moral sense, as we've discussed before. Good in that case is conformity to purpose. A good cup does what cups are made for. 
but we mean good in the broad sense, good as it exists independent of any particular purpose. I suppose one possibility is that good is simply whatever is desirable. Our will can desire nearly anything, but in doing so, it always seeks the good in that thing. This includes even the most evil acts of man. Things commonly considered the source of evils, such as money or power or sex or pleasure, are all good of themselves and in their proper place. It's when they're out of proportion or dominate one's life that they become an evil. The love of money is the root of evil, not money. That works as our functional definition of good. But what about a metaphysical definition? Given the way we framed it here, it might seem circular, but it's just what we were talking about. Resemblance to the divine essence is what we mean by good. The common thread between all the things we call good is that they in some way resemble God. Let's take our first idea of good, desirability. Something is desirable only insofar as it is real or actual. A real cake is better than an imaginary cake. A real vacation is better than one that just takes place in your head. The best good is that which is perfect. And perfection would be the full manifestation or expression of something. For instance, let's say you're saving up money. Why? You're hoping to retire, to be free of the daily grind of some job you don't like. The idea is good insofar as it may make you happy. Actually, having some money is better because you'll be closer to making your goal. Having enough money to actually retire is better still. And then actually walking out of work on that last day to go fishing? That's perfect. So the more actualized or perfect something is, the better it becomes. And what's the most actual? The purely actual? That's right, God. So really, resemblance to God is the measure of how good something is. In a more direct way, one could say the manifestation or perfection of something is good. That process of coming into its perfection ties all these concepts together, really. For something to become perfect, it is fully expressing its nature, which is united to its purpose, which consists in being actualized, and which results in being or its final existence. Fully expressing its nature means perfecting its form, which is from the mind of God. Fulfilling a purpose is moral good, which is from God. And actuality or existence relate to God as we already showed. So whatever good means, it all ties back to God. In short, it is fair to say that God is good. And not merely as a quality that he possesses, but as the closest thing to a single term we can find to describe him. Saying that he is good is maybe the one positive feature we can ascribe to him. Whatever good means, it must mean it in reference to God. Our picture of God has gotten more complete over the past few episodes. By definition, God is totally beyond us, so a complete understanding would be an impossibility. A lot of this has been extremely abstract. But what we've managed to do is to extrapolate a number of features that God must possess from his relationship to creation. We're probably nearing the limits of what can be known about God through these rational means, at least when it comes to a simple overview like we're doing. Nevertheless, I think it's fair to say that the picture of the divine essence that we have developed is very much in line with the Western religious tradition, and compatible with at least a few religions. Quote, Concerning the superessential and hidden deity, the science and contemplation of itself in its essential nature is beyond the reach of all created things, as towering superessentially above all. 
and you will find many of the theologians who have celebrated it not only as invisible and incomprehensible, but also as inscrutable and untraceable, since there is no trace of those who have penetrated to its hidden infinitude. The good, indeed, is not entirely uncommunicated to any single created being, but benignly sheds forth its superessential ray, persistently fixed in itself, by illuminations analogous to each being, and elevates to its permitted contemplation and communion those holy minds who strive after it. Dionysius We haven't touched upon specific religions yet, but we are going to. Once we have accepted the existence of God, the existence of the immaterial soul, and some of the divine attributes, it is abundantly clear what the next question should be. Who is God? Has he intervened in history? Nothing about his position as creator, or the purely actual being, requires him to intervene in history. In fact, a great deal of what we have seen so far may suggest otherwise. We see that God, in at least most cases, operates by actualizing the nature of created objects. They act in accordance with their nature with such regularity that this is what allows for science, and to assign them consistent natures in the first place. Yet if God exists, this question of who he is and what he does is clearly the most important question in our lives. It must, in a fundamental way, relate to the very purpose of mankind, at least indirectly, and therefore to each of our individual lives. If any of the world religions are correct, then our eternal fate may also hang in the balance. The existence of an immaterial soul at least allows for the very real possibility of life after death. In comparison, our present condition may only be a minor blip, the first puttering steps on an endless journey. We should probably figure out where we're going, if we're going anywhere. Next week, we will take stock of our present model and what we have learned so far. Then we will begin to consider the world's religions one by one and check them for consistency with our model. <laughs>